Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. All right, I'm Serge. I'm Chris. Welcome to the show. So this time, we thought we would talk about everyone's favorite topic, which is money. And specifically about how money impacts free software. And the big question is, how are you going to eat while you're developing free software? And and how can we make free software sustainable when we don't discuss the financial aspects around it? And that's a big topic that people have been talking about since the very beginning of free software. And here we are uh, basically 40 years later, and we're still thinking about it, well, maybe 30 years later, but we're still thinking about it. We're still discussing it. And um, it's still a big issue in a lot of people's minds. And so let's get down into the weeds here, Chris. Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, uh, yeah. So fundraising, uh, finding, so I've done a lot of jobs and in, in my work on free software stuff, you know, I've done everything from, you know, coding to even some graphics and graphic design and, and uh, management of, you know, the a project being a maintainer and doing documentation. And of all those roles, fundraising has been the hardest. And uh, and just as, an, as a little aside, I think not everybody realizes or appreciates that. I didn't always. I remember I, I used to work uh, for a nonprofit that did some free software-related stuff, and they hired somebody to do grant writing. And there were two people actually doing the grant writing, and I'm like, man, like, how hard can this be like they're just like you know like that how hard of a job could that be we're doing all the serious work over here and i am like ashamed to think of that state of my mind at this point because i've never done anything harder than fundraising yeah fundraising is is difficult it's it's challenging um but let's let's take a, a step back and let's talk about free software and why free software needs or has a unique funding model. So when we think about proprietary software, um, we can kind of think about it pre-internet and post-internet. So pre-internet, you would buy your software. Most people would go to a store and just buy a box, and that box would contain disks or a CD-ROM, and that you know the purchase price would fund the developer, and that's you know that's it. And it was. Uh, for for the developer, it was a bit of an investment. Or so you know, you'd put in all this work, and you'd hope that people would buy the product. And if it worked out, great. And if it didn't, it didn't. But but that's how uh, investments go. Right. In the post-internet age, it's similar. People maybe they download it on a uh, either directly on someone's website, they have registration, or maybe they use a software distribution medium like an app store, um, or maybe they sell a subscription and they run it off a off a website. But let's focus, at least for this discussion, on software that runs on individuals' PCs. So, you know, you might buy a subscription and, and it'll come with all the updates or whatever. And with free software, we don't we don't really have that same need because the software is distributed freely. Um, of course, we always talk about the freedoms, but in this discussion, we can just focus on the price issue. And if you don't have to pay for it, how does the developer get the money that they need to live in the world? Yeah. Um, so, and so it's a little bit 
complicated also because, you know, as you said, uh, um, post-internet things have changed a bit. And I think actually pre-internet things were a bit closer for free software. The Free Software Foundation, I know I'm getting ahead of things a bit, but the Free Software Foundation used to be funded by selling software and manuals. And that's not the case now that we've moved to online distribution, you know, like it's not quite as much of a moneymaker as it used to be because most people were just getting things on tape. And so they were still basically buying it, even though they legally could copy and distribute it. Um, right. That makes sense. Right. And and now people don't really use, uh, you know, containers. So software, what I mean by containers is disks or CDs or, you know, tapes, software tapes that, to distribute software. It's it's done over the Internet. It's it's easier and it's faster for the most part. And right. you're right. So f- from a perspective of the average person, whether they were buying software that was proprietary or buying software that was that was free as in freedom and allowed them to sort and read the source code and modify it the process was much the same early on right but now so but you know with the ability to copy everything and distribute it over a network um it reduces the friction to such a degree that um i think the we're, we kind of see um, both free software being you know in many ways it's really great that you can copy it so easily and that kind of is is the foundation of you know our our work but also um and then you see on the other side you see proprietary companies getting more and more strict about the fact that they're actually at risk from at risk i say in quotes from their their you know kind of core um mechanism of trying to push for money which is that they're trying to make their thing a rivalrous good. So I want to talk about the difference between rivalrous and non-rivalrous goods. Sounds so, good. yeah. So, um, so, so let's give some examples of of rivalrous goods. So bread, right? Bread's a rivalrous good because if I eat the bread, Serge, you don't get this bread anymore. Um, and and so that's a good example. But like, um, there's also and most of the the things that we operate with in the physical world are. Uh, rivalrous in that kind of way, but in when it comes. So when you to, say rivalrous, really, what you mean is that if I have it, you can't have it, and if you have it, I can't have it. Exactly. Um, and so um, when it comes to kind of digital distribution, um, when you want to have the illusion of rivalrousness, um, you know, proprietary companies sometimes actually turn to either DRM or legal tools to kind of you know force people to do things but we don't we don't want to do that in free software uh which leads us to a challenge that's called uh um so we we're building this commons of um of content and uh that leads to two kind of classic uh thought problems which are the tragedy of the commons and the free rider problem are are we are are you also going to touch on the issue of marginal cost because i think that's a part of of this discussion as well or do we we want to get that now or no why don't you explain that and then okay. we'll get into the other ones. All right. So when we think about the cost of producing a good, so you gave the example of a loaf of bread. So there's obviously a cost associated with that loaf of bread. There's the ingredients. There's the the cost of having an oven, of the bakery itself, and the baker's time, and all of that. There's, there's a, a cost uh, associated with making that bread. Um, if you make one loaf of bread, it's going to cost you a certain amount. If you make lots of loaves of bread, you can buy a bigger bakery 
uh, maybe even a factory, and the marginal cost, the cost of making each subsequent bread will go down, right? So as you scale up, the cost of production goes down. That's the marginal cost. The thing about software is that it, for the most part, has a zero marginal cost. And what that means is that it, once a piece of software is developed and there is a version out there, it, it, it doesn't cost anything additional to make one or two or a thousand copies. Right. It costs exactly the same. And that's why the software model for proprietary software is so strange because you have to, you have to essentially create an investment as a developer. So, 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 so proprietary software developers are putting in their work um, with the hopes that people will buy something that has zero marginal cost for non-zero amounts of money. And, and this is where I think you're going to go, which is that they have to then create artificial scarcity because in a natural market, uh, an item that has zero marginal cost will cost you no know, nothing. So that means that, that, that the proprietary world has to create these artificial constraints to make the cost to the end, the end consumer higher than zero. Right. And it, it, well, it, it costs nothing once the thing exists. So actually, there's two kind of ideas that float around this. Actually, I think we can skip the tragedy of the commons because we can we should have a whole episode maybe even on just like those philosophical concepts of game theory, tragedy of the commons, free rider problem and stuff. So I'm just going to jump straight to the free rider problem. So the free rider problem, the idea is that um, you've got, you know, so let's say you've got a bus and uh you know, in, in most of our bus systems, you know, one person, uh, each person pays for themselves to get on the bus. But you can imagine a um, a bus s- system where one person just pays a, a, a big chunk of cash and then everybody else gets to ride for free. Well, who's going to be the first one to step up and pay for that ticket? Um, kind of everybody's incentivized to not do that. and And that's not exactly true in free software that nobody's incentivized to do it you know the we actually people are very excited to be able to do work and stuff like that but you do have this uh resource cost to be able to develop the thing initially and uh and you know we haven't gotten into maintenance yet but uh but you know if we just think about developing the software and and ignore ongoing maintenance you know somebody pays for that up front and then everybody else can just take it and run effectively right and that and I think one of the things that uh, I'm going to take a weird tangent here. So free software, as a community, tends to attract two very different political spectrums. One being people who are, and, and I'm going to use the American political spectrum: people on the left and people on, uh, so we'll say, you know, liberals and libertarians. And the reason that and taking I'm. Um, uh, going to just put on the libertarian perspective here is that they would talk about these as markets and in a natural market uh, where there were no artificial barriers. Uh, the the uh, incentive here is to wait for the initial cost and then to utilize and, and then basically to um, for everyone to just to take from, from that pool. I don't know if that if that made any sense. Uh, I got distracted, frankly. Uh, a little behind the scenes, my cats decided to both run in front of me 
while doing this episode. So got a little <laughs> distracted in the middle of that. Um, uh, it, it makes sense. So you, you described the libertarian perspective. I think you meant to describe the left perspective as well. Yeah. Well, so the left perspective would be, thank you, would be uh, the perspective of, well, once we have this good, everyone can benefit from it. So if we go back to this loaf of bread example that, uh, that I gave, um, if we have if we have a loaf of bread that can that can feed everyone, um, one magical loaf of bread that never depletes, um, it's in the best interest of all humanity that we make this loaf of bread, and then everyone can eat for, from it forever. Right. Um, so yeah. So there's another aspect. Uh, so actually. I do want to describe the tragedy of the commons also now that I think about it, because I think that the free rider problem tends to describe kind of the initial payment and then, you know, kind of running away. And the tragedy of the commons, the way that it might apply is actually ongoing maintenance. Um, the tragedy of the commons is you imagine there's, you know, this 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 uh, commons sh- uh, field where everybody can put out their sheep to graze and everybody's only supposed to put out one sheep, but it's not really policed. And you know, if if your neighbor actually puts out two sheep, you lose out by not putting out two sheep yourself, uh, it appears. But then uh, if you end up putting out two sheep as well, actually, everybody starts doing that. Uh, suddenly, everybody's incentivized because somebody else is kind of cheating things to, to do that. And there's a problem with maintenance in the sense that um, while the free rider problem, I think, really well describes non-rivalrous goods, uh, the tragedy of the commons describes rivalrous goods pretty well um, in that you have this resource that can be depleted. And that resource is kind of, in a certain sense, the energy to keep a thing running. And everybody's kind of incentivized from from this kind of, you know, pure market type perspective to not contribute to that thing and kind of deplete it. Um, so I don't know if we, you know, so that that's kind of. There's more that can be said on. That's very topics. heady. We got into a really heady place. We, we got into a really heady start. I mean, that's good. You know, I actually I like that kind of stuff. Um, but let's let's now move into the actual stuff by um, let's put a phrase directly at our users, which is: Should you only pay if somebody puts a gun to your head? Um, and uh, so so you know so Serge, so like if you if so you and I might both. Uh, um, have an option to buy this fun, uh, um, you know, let's say, let's say there's a proprietary roguelike and a free roguelike, and both of them are very nice. Uh, and we both want to spend our weekend, you know, playing this game. Um, and, uh, the, the proprietary roguelike, uh, there's some legal, somebody does kind of put a gun to our head through the legal system in DRM. Does that, does that seem accurate? Yeah. Uh, through copy protection or DRM, yeah, the, that they, they are they're in some ways restricting our use of the software. Right. But it doesn't seem to me, in general, in the free software case, that, that it seems like I could just copy that and run away and not pay for it. Um, so there's a question of when you are not forced to do it, um, should you do it? Uh, and uh, I think you and I would both have a pretty simple answer to that, which is yes, correct? That that we should. I want to be clear on what 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 I'm saying. Yes to that. You should what that 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 it, if you're presented with an opportunity to pay for the thing, you should you should give money. In theory, um, I actually don't know if I, if I, I would would agree with would agree with that necessarily. And I and I and I actually don't think that 
boy, is, we were we were not thinking this this conversation would go in this direction. But I don't think that that's the the way we need to be thinking about free software. Um, so even someone like me who does give a lot of money to to free software organizations and and supports free software causes. Um, the reasons that I support these organizations is not, you know, is, is because I want to support the author. So in that way, I guess the answer is yes. So, so, you know, I always want to support the author, but I don't necessarily think that, that there's a moral obligation to pay for something that is given away freely. Well, okay, so moral obligation is a tricky thing because uh, defining moral obligation is kind of complicated. But um, I'm, so maybe not an imperative, but there is kind of a moral drive in a sense to give because you do feel like there's an ethical purpose right. well, to give. Right, there's a reciprocation, right? So if someone is giving me something of value to me, right, and that could be software, uh, you know, in, this, in our example, you're roguelike, right? So I'm going to enjoy this roguelike. I feel that I should give something back to them, especially if I want to support the creator or creators of this of this game and want to support them um, enjoying their life and also want to support more work from them in the future. So then the, then then the answer is yes. Right. So I also want to throw out there that it seems to me that a lot of people so I do I'm not endorsing Steam as a DRM distribution of of games platform but one thing that strikes me is that i know a lot of people who are more than capable of uh you know uh i'm i'm putting air quotes around this but pirating uh um a you know a proprietary game off of there and yet choose to even though they're doing a proprietary game choose to uh actually you know pay for it in that way and that strikes me partly that um even in the proprietary case, there might not actually be a uh, gun requirement, you know, that artificial gun that we're introducing that people may be incentivized to do it because they do actually want to be able to uh, uh, support the underlying structure that allows this thing to exist. Right. And, and we can look at um, I don't I don't want to look too closely at proprietary organizational structures. I think we should spend the most of our time talking about free software organizational structures, but the example that comes to mind in um, as a counter to Steam would be Humble Bundle. So in Humble Bundle, you can also buy proprietary software. Originally um, free software, actually, and then they switched away from that. Oh, I didn't, didn't realize that. Okay. Um, and you could pay what you wanted, and you can still do that, I believe, at least to, to some extent. Um, and they also, as far as I know, don't have any DRM in software that is distributed via Humble Bundle. Right. And so, so mm-hmm. yeah, to make it clear, I'm not actually bringing these things up to endorse these things. I do not endorse Steam. I don't endorse buying proprietary games. But I do think that it's interesting for us to under examine the underlying incentive structures uh, of these things in general. And even looking at the the proprietary case kind of, I think, exposes that. Uh, the belief that um, we should only pay for things when there's a gun to our heads that, you know, people might be able to dodge that gun pretty easily and do it anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think what you're talking about is what motivates people and why, why are they paying for something that they could in theory uh, n- not pay for? Um, and this is a question that, that many proprietary uh, software and culture creators and distributors think about. 
right? It's the, why do I pay for music when I could just pirate it? Or why do I, you know, wh why should someone pay for a streaming service when they could download it off? They could download the, the video off the internet. Um, some of that they've taken from us in term, uh, but I don't want to get too, too deep into that. Uh, meaning, so there's things that we've created like package managers and, and just uh, directories of software that are very similar to app store type, um, experiences, but, but we can learn from our proprietary, um, uh, brethren, uh, what they're, you know, what the, we, we can, we can use their experience to further our, our needs, uh, and our means to, to getting better free software, uh, uh structures that will be sustainable in the long term. Um, do we want to jump, actually, do we want to just jump into what the various structures that are currently funding free software are? Sure. Why don't we do that? And then let's get into kind of a little bit more of the meta of the funding stuff right at the end. Okay. Good. Cause I, th I think, I think we've gotten way too far in, into the wonky bits. So when I think about free software uh, models, how does, so when I say models, I mean, how the heck do people who are programmers get paid to program. Um, and in some cases they don't, right? So in some cases a programmer has another job, they work at their job and then in their, in their spare time, they work on free software. And that could also apply to a student, for example, who um, they're, they're studying, they're not getting paid for developing, they're not getting paid at all, or they've got a, a you know, a second job and then, they work on free software um, in the, in their off time. And that's actually and, really, it's important because we actually have a reciprocal gift economy of sorts um, of, you know, people are giving back, not just because necessarily money's in, in the way, but they might be like, oh, I really benefited from this. So I want to give back in the way that I can, which can be code or something like that. Well, and, and I think there's another part, you know, um, there's another part that's really important here, which is the motivator for these people may be uh, the desire to give back. It could also just be that they believe this is the right thing to do, that they, that this is, that, that, that their motivation is purely a moral motivation. It's an, it, it's an, it's part of our, our ethics and our culture of giving back. So maybe they've, as you say, they've used free software before and their motivation is, wow, I really have benefited from the community and I, and, and not just, I want to give back directly, but, Giving is good. And also, um, I think something that, that has gotten lost in our culture is that it feels good to give. Yeah. It feels good to, to do things for others. And that is an important motivation. Yeah. Uh, it's actually one that, that, um, if anyone, if any one of our listeners listens to Free as in Freedom, uh, Free as in, Free as in Freedom's t last episode in 2018, their only episode in 2018, Karen Sandler mentions, um, the the moral feelings and um, the you know, these ethics as a motivator for sustainability and free software. Yeah. So that's one that's one really basic model. Um, and then there, I think the rest of it that we're going to discuss are models by which uh, developers get paid for work for for working on free software in some way. Uh, and and something you brought up. Do we want to discuss this now? Uh... I think we should, because I think you started to discuss, you know, that a lot of people don't get paid. Um, and before we actually discuss the model, the funding models, which we should get to, because we've haven't yet. Uh, it, 
I think that, you know, you were talking, talking to me about this before the show is that, you know, introducing money can actually can kind of change a community. Is that, isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, so, so when we think about, um, there, there's a term in, in, in psychology of cognitive dissonance. And when your morals don't meet your actions, when they're, when they're out of sync, it's your morals that change. And when we create artificial incentives to do good behavior, um, people motivate themselves or they align themselves with the, with the um, reward rather than intrinsic motivation. And so you see this, for example, they've done studies with kids and I wish I had one off the top of my head, but I don't where you, you, you take children and you say, it's good to put away your toys. It's good to do chores. It helps your family. It, we're all in this together. And then if you introduce financial rewards, so if you do the dishes, I'll give you a dollar. Um, then over time, children are demotivated to do chores unless they're getting paid. Right. Yeah. And, and, and once, once you end up starting to get paid, um, in something that's like a community like free software, you, you might also end up getting into conflict about, okay, now we have money. Who gets it? And, you know, once you introduce that, you might not have had, there was no de- debate about who got it before. But now if there's five developers and there's enough to maybe pay one full time or spread it out, you might end up actually having disagreement about who, who should get it. Right. You, you, and, and in addition to that, you add overhead in terms of, making sure that people are getting paid that and as you say we, we create conflict you know, conflict can arise and oh i worked five hours but uh, but you know you only worked three hours but you might say well my right but my three hours are more important than your five hours you know and uh those kind of conflicts uh arise as you say but and you also have to have someone taking in the money you have to have someone doing accounting and you have to have someone sending out the checks. There's all kinds of complexity, both practical and emotional, that come in once you introduce once once you introduce these external motivators. Yeah, and but I mean, I think okay, despite those complications, I think you and I still believe that most free software is dramatically underfunded, and that that leads to problems. Yeah, and so uh, two examples that we were discussing um, before the show. Uh, that that were I think motivators for us doing this show were vulnerabilities in NTP and in OpenSSL. And so NTP is uh, the network time protocol. It's the thing that keeps the computers on the internet in sync, which is a a very important basic function that computers on the internet need. They need to be in sync for a whole bunch of stuff to work. So they use this protocol protocol called NTP and NTP has an implementation on Unix. That's pretty much the same everywhere. Um, and there was a vulnerability. Uh, and the problem is that NTP was underfunded and the developer just couldn't keep up with the, the demand. And even though this was such a fundamental piece of software that gets run on millions or billions of computers, it wasn't, um, it, it, it wasn't maintained properly because it didn't have uh the res the, the developer didn't have the resources to to dedicate to it it didn't have either their own time or per- perhaps a team of people that could keep up with it and and similarly open ssl which is uh, a piece of a library that's used um in encryption so sort of the basic 
uh, building block of uh, browser communication and 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 but but uh, in addition to other things, SSH etc. Um, also had vulnerabilities, but again didn't have the developer resources because it wasn't funded properly. So so not having free software funded sufficiently can cause major headaches. Right. And what you discussed right there are both kind of, I consider very infrastructure-y type things that um, also in some ways does appeal to what we kind of call the open source method development methodology type approach that many businesses have that kind of, you know, took the world by storm starting around, you know, in, in the late nineties and the two thousand early two thousands of like, Oh, well, we can, you know, we should pay for these, you know, this commons of libraries where we'd have, but, you know, and other tooling infrastructure, but the, that kind of last layer we're going to proprietize. And then there's also, I think, a category of things that are also difficult to fund. Uh, um, you know, you, so you might be able to, and we'll, we'll talk about kind of, you know, getting those organizations to get motivated to fund those types of things but there's also categories of things which you know don't really that are kind of much more end user facing like you know uh libreoffice or blender or things like that that are not kind of you know are frequently not kind of that that are kind of hitting the end user but are not necessarily at some company's uh kind of uh uh infrastructure stack right so 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 when we talk about ntp and OpenSSL, they're vitally piece, important pieces of software, but the average person on the street isn't going to know what, what they are. Uh, but if you say to someone on the street, have you ever heard of Firefox? They're probably going to say yes. If you ask them, have you ever heard of LibreOffice? Maybe they've heard of LibreOffice or OpenOffice. Um, they're, they're likely to say that they have. And we, we have a number of pieces of free software um, that are popular enough at this point that uh, the average person on the street has heard of them and, and has probably used them. Yep. Okay, so let's get to the actual funding categories. We organizational have, models. Yeah, yeah. I, think, so, I think we should talk about them as organizational models. And we've kind of split these up into two very, very overlapping categories. Um, and I'm going to put both of these in scare quotes again. So charity funding, and I hear my scare quotes around my fingers, and then businessy funding, also in scare quotes. And like these are very, very, do not think of these as strict categories. We're just kind of, I think they're kind of a, a very broad category, a very broad umbrellas that tend to overlap um, in, in, in this way. Yeah, so before, before we jump into that, just explaining these categories and why we're naming them this way, the when we when we started thinking about this and we started planning this episode, um, we initially used the the U.S. centric terms of nonprofit and for profit, and uh, these these terms they're terms of art relating to tax des- tax designation, um, and they're basically re- regarding how you as an organization uh, create your tax uh, basically file your taxes and and what your mission is. But in reality, um, and by the way, the term charity is a, is that same term of art in the United Kingdom. They their term for nonprofit is charity. Um, but the problem is that discussing tax structure doesn't entirely capture the the nuance of 
for example, there are nonprofits that are structured as nonprofits but have employees and do grow and they they look to anyone uh, who's not a, who's not an, uh, a tax official like just a regular business. They would look just like a regular business. And there are for-profit companies that have a more humanitarian bend to them that are more focused on, on social issues, even though they are for-profit. So we've decided that that's, that, that issue of tax designation isn't really where we want to draw our line, but it, it's a good starting place. And we can think of these things as on a polarity, right? So you have humanitarian charities on one end and completely profit oriented businesses on the other. And we can see that there's, that there's some kind of spectrum, especially as it relates to the kind of organizations that we're talking about, many of which are, um, are small sustainable businesses that are not focused on rapid growth on one end and 501c3 tax designated charities, um, uh, nonprofits on, on the other end that, that maybe don't even have any employees. So we can think of them as a spectrum, but not using tax as our, um, not using tax designation as, as our delineator, but, but rather just the, 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 the motivations of those involved and the structures that they've created to fund themselves based on those motivations. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. Uh, so speaking of that, since we are using it kind of as our base, and you mentioned 501c3 charities, I think when a lot of, or, or nonprofits, I think a lot of us in the US, at least, and I think probably globally, when we think about how nonprofits uh, um, make their money, especially at this time of year, where right now, uh, I know in the US, at least, there's kind of a people, uh, because there is a tax incentive, a bunch of people end up, you know, doing a whole bunch of donations right at the end of the year. Um, but I, uh, but I think that also, um, in, in general, we have this kind of impression of kind of the charity side, um, being very donation driven. And there's kind of a spectrum of donations, uh, uh like kind of donation drives that end up happening, I think. Yeah. Uh, as a, as a five O, you know, as a tax, so as a nonprofit, you are restricted in how you um, bring in income. And in the U.S., uh, it's, it is fairly strict about how you can sell or not sell your uh, goods or services as a nonprofit. Um, so most nonprofits rely on donations where that's not an issue. Right. So, so one, you know, so one type of donation that you could do is just go to a you know, a nonprofit that you like or any project that you like, actually. And many of them actually have just a, a, a you know, some sort of donation link. And you could just click that, throw in some money and do a one-time donation. So that's a classic method. Um, and uh, I guess the other approach is uh, kind of the annual supporter drive, which uh, um, is a little bit more what I think we're talking about right here. Many nonprofits... Um, tend to actually really pull in much of their donations from an annual supporter system because it's actually recurring donations where you get kind of the bulk of your support. And so if you've got a very non-profity uh, home that's housing your software, it, it may be that annual donations may be a place where uh, that funding is coming in. Yeah, recurring donations, whether they're annual or, or they're often, nowadays are more often monthly, 
um, are are hugely important for nonprofits. Um, monthly, especially though, because they um, they allow a nonprofit to to get an idea of what their cash flow will look like um, going month to month. Right. The the, the issue, and I don't want, I know it's a little bit wonky in terms of uh, discussing the the um, the revenue models of, of these organizations, um, but. Uh, for, if you're running an if you're running a nonprofit, it's good to know that you will get X amount in July and X amount in October, rather than just getting a ton of money at one time of the year and then having to try to spread that out. It's it's more useful to know that 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 those monies are recurring. So yeah, recurring donations um, are are hugely popular in the in the nonprofit world. And actually, and, increasingly, not mm-hmm. just in the the you know five hundred one c three. Uh, 5013C, wait, no, I can't. 5013C3. Okay. Yeah, you had it. I always make it. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I transpose things a lot. So, um, the, actually, we're kind of funny. It's kind of funny because we're actually seeing that, um, in not just a nonprofit sense increasing, uh, and not just in free software, but I think it's good that we are seeing it in free software. And I'd like to see more of it in free software is like, you know, uh, um, it partly because Patreon and other organizations like it, like LiberaPay, um, have made it easier um, for people to uh, to kind of set up these monthly donation type systems. Yeah, the 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 Patreon model. It, it's it's funny in, in a lot of ways. We're going back to the the very old some of these old structures and old ideas of um, a patron. Um, which is, you know, just basically a, a very wealthy person who's who's giving money to a uh, to a charitable cause. Frankly, because in the in, in those times it was seen as as a societal duty of the aristocrat um, and the, the you know the king or the duke to 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 give to the system. That was part of their. Um, their requirement it, it was it was seen as the circle of life right um i can I, I could also geek out on that so i'm not going to the the other way you can think about it is uh is i, I think about it like the monk model and i thinking about you know buddhist monks or churches where their congregation gives money to sustain these people who are who are sustaining them in in a spiritual sense but in this way um you know, we're doing it in the uh, Patreon, which doesn't just support free software. We're giving it because we support this as a as as a we we support our creators. We want to keep their community. We want to have a community feeling, but also we just want to sustain them. They give to us, and we give to them. So I I think that in in a lot of ways they're facilitating these very old ideas and bringing them back into our into our consciousness yeah and i think it's very inspiring to see that like many of the web comics i read are are you know artists are being finally you know pretty well funded uh off of recurring donations and i know there's been some criticism that oh this is kind of you know like this is kind of knocking it off of the you know 501c3 you know approach but in in many ways i think you know it not everybody has the infrastructure to kind of set up um for that type of thing. So I, I think making it easier to have payment mechanisms and have recurring payment things to connect to donors, I think it's good to kind of uh, 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 make that easier to access. So I'd love it if we had less centralized platforms to do it. 
Yeah, but that's not the only model. Um, there are there are other models, and we should we should. And I don't know if we even want to start breaking this this episode down into two parts. Um, frankly, because we because we're at, at forty minutes in here. Yep. Um, yeah, we could do two episodes. So, so we might. Yeah, we might want to split this up and and do two parts. Um, so maybe maybe we'll do that the heady discussiony stuff here, and then next time discuss the organizations and so, with some practical examples. Well, why don't we just finish um, the charity stuff and then we'll do the businessy stuff on the next episode? That sounds that sounds that sounds great. Okay, so so the next one actually kind of tying in with you know another nonprofity, you know, actually a very commons oriented original type thing that actually a for profit has kind of swept into the space. Um, the ransomware approach or the Kickstarter-ish approach, I guess is how people see it now, crowdfunding, um, is uh, um, was actually really huge a few years ago and is, is not as huge as it was, but it's still pretty large. Um, and it's kind of funny because the first crowdfunding system I know of that got pretty big, the first was actually a free software project. It was Blender. Uh, Blender... Uh, in the uh, in the early 2000s, uh, that company, what the company, not a number that was making Blender, was going out of business. Their investors were upset, and Ton Rosendahl was like, "Hey, uh, I can raise some money so that you can get some of your money back. Uh, and if we raise that much money, can we release this as free software?" And they said yes. And in a very short period of time, people raised the money, and the community kind of bought. Uh, the rights to have Blender be free software. And that was the origin story of Blender. And uh, in many ways, uh, that kind of... Uh, ran so there's kind of this idea of ransomware, which is, you know, I have this thing, you'd like this thing, give me enough money, and then it becomes, you know, we release it. And that was a... Ransomware was originally kind of developed as a vision to how to be able to fund uh, common Z projects, if I remember correctly, but then Kickstarter also kind of took it um, into crowdfunding in general as almost more of a store in some ways, even though they say well, Kickstarter is not a store. In many ways, it's kind of become a way to to fund uh, products um, and maybe things yeah, that don't I, exist yet fully. And I, and I think one of the, 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 the key things that Kickstarter had to do um, as a business was because they were because. Well, so let's let's flip this around. The the for for crowdfunding Blender, Blender didn't just come out of nowhere and and people started saying, oh we we, we want to make some three D software and we have no qualifications. You've never heard of us. Give us money, right? So the the people involved in the creation of Blender had had um the, you know they they had something to show for their work. So this was a transitional type project. In, in terms of we, we were working on this, we want to continue to work on this, uh, and we're taking it to the next step. Um, where where Kickstarter had to what Kickstarter had to do was since you couldn't vet everyone, they had to create these other artificial incentives. But I think that the important thing here is that the reputation was a component in the creation of Blender. So uh, the 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 people that were creating Blender were people that we knew about. It wasn't just, you know, someone that you'd never heard of saying, I'm going to, I've got this ambitious idea, but no idea how to implement it. Yeah. And I mean, so I've done two of these crowdfunding campaign type things, both of them through the Free Software Foundation when, when I was working on Media Goblin uh, full time. And that 
you know, paid for my work and then it paid for Jessica Challen's work. And actually, really, in a certain sense, it paid for uh, the ability for me to work on Activity Pub. For, you know, Activity Pub, the Federation standard wouldn't have happened uh, unless if I had been able to get this space by being able to pay Jessica Talon to maintain and develop the Federation code for Media Goblins so that we could standardize that. Um, and it was hard running those crowdfunding campaigns. It's really, uh, and in many ways, those things are very similar to the annual supporter drive type uh, approach, but without actually being annual. Um, and the the mental anguish about, you know, setting everything up. You have no idea if it's going to succeed. You make this video, you do all that stuff. It's, it is, you know, definitely one of the hardest things I've done in my which, life. Which is why there's a whole industry now around helping companies and individuals create crowdfunding campaign. There's a whole, there's a whole industry of people saying, we will help you with your crowdfunding campaign because they know just how difficult it is. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, my spouse, Morgan and I worked together and, you know, Morgan did a lot of the work, but, uh, um, we worked together and I mean, spent time, you know, packaging things and, you know, sitting in the, the postal office and all that stuff to get that stuff out. And I can't, I totally understand why there are people who, you know, go with other businesses to do that. But anyway, the main point of this thing is that the crowdfunding kind type approach, um, either falls into one of two categories. It's either I have a thing and it can be free, um, for the, from the free spofters perspective, it can be free if only you all give me this much money. And that's the ransomware approach. And the other approach is, I haven't built this thing yet, um, but I have enough reputation where um, if you give me enough money, we can make this happen. And those are kind of the two sides of the the crowdfunding perspective, I'd say. Yeah, and th I mean, there's there's some middle ground that it's not as common, right? Where someone might say, "Well, I've got this piece of software that does this, but I want to take it to the next level, or maybe maybe it's not super easy to use, and I want to add a front end or whatever." Right. But um, but and I think. Yeah, a lot of free software I, I ones that hit we can, that middle we can ground. Just see those as yeah, I, I think we can just see those as as polarities rather than you know they're, they're not they're not binary these these two these two things. They're that the, software is is going to be on some kind of everything's here is going to be on some kind of spectrum. So yeah, I agree. I agree with your with your distinctions. Yeah. So then there's the other one, which is that you're going to go download something from a website, and because you're downloading it from the website, there's uh, a button next to download that says, you know, please donate or might even encourage you to click through the donation before you get to the download. And and actually that starts to move into the businessy kind of side of things in some cases. In some cases it doesn't. It's kind of confusing to me sometimes. Uh but you know what's funny I think is that uh um the document found uh, so so yeah the document foundation they they do this for the download page I believe uh for Windows downloads, right? Sorry, so so the Document Foundation is the comp is the organization. I was going to say company. They're the organization that is in charge of LibreOffice, right? A free software office suite. Yeah, and so if I go and I click download on there, um, I get you know there there is a button that can encourage me to donate, and I might do so. Um, and, uh, the document foundation does this a little bit more indirectly. I think we'll talk about Ardour and some other organizations that do it much more directly as if you're buying it. But, you know, the, in this case, I'd say we're kind of doing the suggested donation model. And what's funny is, is that I think that most of the document foundation's funding 
and other organizations that do this type of thing, um, their money mostly comes from Windows users. Um, and that's because use, Windows users do go to the website to download things. Maybe that's less true now that Microsoft has their new app store. Uh, but I think that that's historically been the case. It might be. I mean, the other we, – we could, of course, ask if um, – I mean, we could we could look at, for example, Ubuntu. Um, Ubuntu also has a, a download uh, page that comes up when you want to when you want to download the software. So um, that that you know, it might be a fun exercise if someone could could look at the percentage of of individuals who donate to to each of those things. I, I, I don't know. I don't remember if Firefox also has a donation um, page come up when you try to download it. Yeah, but I, what's what's kind of funny is that. Um, I do know from having talked to a few projects about this that they say that most of their donations do not come from uh, um, that style of donation where you click on the, the the download button donation. It's not that donations in general from free software uh, from free software operating system users don't happen. It's just that uh, um, in general, I think it tends to come from uh, um, there is a. Uh, uh, free software package managers make it so that you never kind of see that button in a certain sense. Right. It's, uh, so for people who are, who aren't um, users of, of GNU Linux, it's, it's, if you can imagine an app store where everything is free, that's, that's basically our, our experience of, of, of the world for the most part is if you want to, if you want to, if you want to program, you just say, Oh, I want this. And suddenly it's on your computer. Right. So, I mean, that, so Asteroid does do this. They have donate buttons next to the different things. Admittedly, I don't use them because I don't have an easy way to donate on my phone very easily that I trust. Um, but uh, the but I, I sometimes do wish that I had an easier way from my package manager to be incentivized and to choose how to be able to donate. Like, oh, yeah, I'm really using this a lot. I should give some money. Uh, um, I don't know. Do you feel that way? Do you think that that would make a difference? Yeah, I actually, at one point years and years ago, tried to create this. Oh, really? Um, where I, I had a script that would, um, I want to go back one thing you said, which is Eftroid. And for people that don't know, Eftroid is basically the free software, um, Android marketplace for, for Android phones that, uh, so, so it's it's basically an alternative marketplace where everything is free software. So, anyway, so on, on uh, the years ago on GNU Linux, I tried to to write a software. It would basically ran ps, which is a command that lets you see all the programs that are running. And I I thought, well, like, oh, okay. Well, what I'll do is I'll look at all the programs that are running, and from there I can determine what package. Um, you know what package each program is from, and then uh, I'll have some kind of receipt or something that will report that'll tell me like, oh, you're using this a lot or using that a lot. And it turned out, of course, that I was using like libc all the time. Right. Um, but uh, so that didn't it didn't quite work out. Um, it it also ended up being that you know. Firefox was running all the time and Emacs was running all the time and terminals were running all the time. Oh yeah. And, it, and so it, give it, all that so money to just, X-Term. Right. Yeah. It was just like, okay, this doesn't really accurately reflect my, my usage. Um, but I think, but I think it was an interesting problem and I think it's one that, that we as free software users 
um, don't have uh, a good idea of, which is how much, you know, how much value add to our lives does this software provide? Um, it's, it, you know, we don't, we don't want to think about the, the money and, and we shouldn't have to think about the money. That's, that's actually an important thing that I want to emphasize here is that we don't, we don't say, oh, you must pay us back. There, there's no direct obligation, but for those of us who can, it would, it would be nice to be able to say, hey, you know, this program that I use has really helped me out in some way. I should really think about it. So an example that's coming to mind is, um, I write a lot of software in Python, um, and and uh, it might be good that I and I haven't I haven't donated to the to the Python Foundation in a while, and it might you know it might be nice if something said, hey, I see you've been writing a lot of software in Python. Have you considered donating to Python? Or hey, I see you using Django to write websites. Maybe you should give money to the Django Foundation, right, or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. And, and you know, yeah. another thing that another observation that's been made many times is that uh, the, the modern app store that's, you know, a proprietary app store looks a lot like package managers that we've had in free software for a long time. Right. Yeah. Uh, I said that earlier. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So um, but one of the funny things is, is that and actually I know quite a few free software projects where they're really excited to get on one of these proprietary app stores because then they start getting money from that source. And it kind of bugs me that, um, well, gosh, like free software people do want to give money. And like, I'm, I think a lot of people do want to give money, like don't want to only say that they, if you ask them, should you only pay with a gun to your head, they'd say no. And yet clearly, um, our package managers are not delivering on this, you know, on this thing that I think many users would voluntarily do if given the option. And I don't know how to improve that situation actually. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, I don't think there is a great solution right now to, to that. Um, so, but let's, let's, boy, we are, we are both terrible at staying focused. So <laughs> well, this is good conversation um, though, at least. Uh, no, it is great. Um, and I hope, well, I, I hope people like it. Uh, um, give us feedback. But, so let's talk about, talk, talk, let's talk about the, the charity. So are we still, so we've talked about um, LibreOffice well, yeah. um, as an example charity. Yeah, so this is kind of the donation. I think we kind of wrapped up the kind of what I would consider different donation things, right? One-time donations, annual supporter style, or these kind of crowdfunding style donations, and the like donate when you click forward a lot right on a website, right? All of those strike me as donation-y things. Um, what about grants? Are we? Are you? Are you going to include? Are we going to talk about that here? Right. Or are we no. Wait let's talk about grants. Next let's talk about it. No, I think that grants are great because grants are kind of like donations, but they usually come from one major source. Usually not an individual, though sometimes it may be. Um, but usually, it grants come from some sort of uh, other. Um, it's kind of you know one charity supporting another group's work in general. Is that would you say, consider that accurate, or how would you summarize? It? Yeah, I would, but I, but I would I would say that the one thing that makes charities interest, I'm sorry, uh, grants interesting, is that in some ways they remind me a bit of uh, crowdfunding, in that their most grants, although not all, but most grants have a whole bunch of strings attached, right? They're going to say, well, we want to see you producing some outcome. 
We, 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 you know, and, and we might even have metrics by which we want to measure your success. Right. And if we don't see you meeting certain milestones, we're not going to keep giving you money. Right. And, and that varies, right? Some grants are much more loose about how they give money. And some of them are, do have more of these strings, as you said. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, all of those can be valid, uh, you know, depending on, uh, uh, you know, what, what, you know, what, what's applicable. Um, and, and the way you get grants can really vary. Um, so you, but usually I think most grants, there's some sort of grant submission process where a bunch of people kind of throw in proposals and, and some committee looks over the proposals and somebody wins. Would you, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. I would I would say that's that's about right. Yeah, it's 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 a it's it's almost a, a bidding process uh, in in a, in a way. Yeah, kind of a bidding, but instead of but kind of bidding with an output that's supposed to be in the public good, though. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we want to talk about maybe corporate sponsorships. Yeah, as a, a corporate sponsorships to charity organizations as a model. Yeah, I mean, so in. It's kind of similar to grants. How would you distinguish distinguish these things? I mean, I think that that's that's the interesting part is that they're all on a spectrum, right? So some some corporate sponsorship is basically a donation, right? They just want to give money. They have some maybe maybe they have some tax reason to do so, and they just make a check out to some nonprofit and say, we you know here it is. Um, sometimes they'll say, oh, we, we'll write you a big check, but we want acknowledgement we want credit for writing you this big check so put us in your newsletter or mention us on your website um and then i i i, I feel like it can go up from there the obligations to the nonprofit can increase from there and would you consider what like the and and it's actually i think it's much more rare then people get it advertised to. But there's the mythical kind of 20% time, like you do free software and a portion of time at your work. And it doesn't happen as often as I think people get the impression, but it does happen sometimes. And it, it can be really exciting to people when those types of opportunities come up. Would you consider that sponsorship where if an employer says, you know, we we really like this project, we're willing to let our employees do a certain amount of work? Or do you think that's a different category? I think that's a different category. I think that's part of the business, uh, the business models that uh, that I that I think we would we 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 had planned on talking about. Okay, but since so we're let's, so late let's, into let's the episode, skip, skip ahead on that. Yeah. So this is a different corporate approach thing where it's just it's giving to a charity. It's not using your internal resources. Yeah, although and and I guess the the the, the big issue that these types of donations. From charities, right? Sorry, so the, these sponsorships bring up as are there strings attached? And I think that there are almost always some strings attached. By the way, with any donation, right? There's an implicit string attached. So um, if I give to an organization, um, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I want, I want to think about a non-free software example. So if I give to an environmental cause for a uh, for an example, and, and I find out that that environmental cause has been dumping toxic waste. I'm not going to give to them anymore. Um, there's a, you know, the, the strings attached to my donation are that they have to uh, be effective and um, 
and and do what they say they are going to do in terms of 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 designation. Uh, you know, we're an environmental charity, so we're going to do environmental work. Um, the the kind of strings attached that a corporate donor might have is that you know if you're for example um, a publication you know uh, you know a, a newspaper something like that um, they might not want you writing about them right or writing something negative about them and in free software um, I'm not sure what what those look like. Um, in terms of you know when people when those strings are pulled, but I'm sure that that those kind of issues can come up. Though I I do think that there are times where we have seen this where some companies that really rely on free software do decide um, we should try to give back and we should be pretty loose about what it is and and the it may be mostly that their name is attached to it in some way. So and I'm actually I've been a beneficiary of this. Uh, so I. Uh, got to participate in the Stripe open source retreat. They, uh, Stripe, you know, which is an organization that, you know, I think they did the right, I think they did something good by, you know, they paid me to, you know, uh, work on site on the things that I was working on. That's another way that Activity Pub was funded, actually, was, you know, I, I was working on Media Goblin and Activity Pub from their office and they were like, you know, no strings attached. You know, the only real string that was there was that they got their name out there. And, you know, you might say, well, Stripe has a non-free JavaScript, you know, problem in their client that I, I agree. I would actually like to see that changed. I would like to see a, a free software JavaScript interface for their, their payment stuff, uh, the default payment thing. Um, but, you know, uh, is it still a good idea for them to run that kind of program? And I personally feel like uh, I think that I think that, you know, they're given how easy it is to uh, take from the commons without giving back and how rare it can be for companies to give back. I think it's great when a company does decide to step up and do some sort of sponsorship. And I think we should encourage it. Yeah. Just as a, as a funny aside, I don't know if you know that the Collison brothers who, who founded Striper are Lispers. Oh, really? I didn't um, know that. Uh, I, yeah, no, they, they've talked about that in, in, in their, um, and they're how the company was founded. I think some of the initial code was was written in Lisp. But but getting getting back to the to the question of of corporate um, strings on donations, I think it I think it doesn't come up very often. But it, it may when um, an organization has a, a a nonprofit or a foundation associated with it, and they have um, membership that can, you know, basically sponsor membership where. By paying a certain amount, you have a seat at the table, right? And you may have more influence. So this, we may say, this is especially happens in five hundred one c six scenarios, right? Which, uh, if you listen to Free and Freedom, you've probably heard plenty of uh, stuff about the difference between five hundred one c threes and five hundred one c sixes. Yeah, um, the trade, the trade or trade uh, associations, I believe. Yeah, um, and I, I don't know if we really want to go into that here. No, I don't think. I think that people, people that want that, can listen to. Freeze and freedom, and they should listen to both of us. But but for those type of of really deep legal dives, they should definitely listen to to faith. Yeah, sounds good. Um, All right. So, but but yeah. So let's keep going. Is there any more? Uh, well, here on so, so, charities. So, so well, uh, so it's not. So this is kind of in the sponsorship category, but we have two 
um programs that happen one of them is has a one very direct sponsor and the other one actually has a number of different sources of funding um but i think it's interesting because they are a fund rate they are a fund way to fund uh stuff and projects and quite a few projects uh both google summer of code and outreachy are um funding usually for newcomers and students sometimes people who have been you know pretty long established in the community but since it's aimed at students uh primarily uh, i think outreachy is more loose and is not doesn't have just a student requirement but uh usually both of those organizations things are are ways to get people into your community and to encourage new contributors um and they do give a stipend for people to uh work on code and uh, many features do come into free software projects because of those programs yeah, I've been a, I was a Google Summer of Code mentor, um, two different years. And, uh, yeah, so basically, uh, they work, they work somewhat differently in that, uh, Google Summer of Code, uh, students are paid through Google and in Outreachy, it's a little bit more complicated where it's essentially that they're, that there's kind of, they're almost like a matchmaker finding students and uh attaching them with um with fundraisers and with projects right so um so it's a little bit it's a little bit it's a little bit more uh complicated that that relationship's a little more complex but yeah essentially from from a student perspective they're they're doing the same and from a from a free software perspective people students are getting paid uh, I'm just going to say students even though um that may not be totally accurate students are getting paid to be free software contributors and to get a taste of what it's like to work in the free software community. Yep. And, uh, um, yeah, so I think that's a good summary. Um, and, uh, um, there's a lot more that can be said about both projects. And I think we've talked about outreachy on episode three, if you want to go back and hear a bit more about that. (laughs) And episode five. Oh yeah. And I'm sure we'll we'll have plenty more to say in the future. We'll probably even get on some outreachy, organization people but let's keep going on this uh so we've got a couple more slots just two more slots that we wanted to talk about on charity and then we should wrap this one up so the next one is government funding and i know you've got lots of thoughts on this serge so why don't you take it away yeah i almost i almost think that government funding should should be part of the the next one but i'll 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 tease everyone a little bit okay um the my view on a lot of software is that uh, the software that we have is is infrastructure. It is uh, the base that our society runs on at this point. Uh, if you use um, government websites, if you you know if you if you do almost anything on the internet or even sometimes off the internet, you are encountering free software. Having good quality, bug free, maintained free software is vital to our functioning society. And that's true whether you live in, you know, the United States, Canada, uh, whether you live in Europe, South America, you know, Africa, anywhere you live, Asia, it doesn't matter where you live. Um, you know, free software is part of your life. And the, the government, and I'm, you know, governments fund projects like roads and they fund projects um you know like food safety 
um, inspections and health trials and other things that are to the benefit of all. And I, I have worked in uh, in the past at government-run research uh, institutions. I've worked um, as a contractor. I worked both at um, NASA and at NIH. And government funds the U.S. government funds those um, organizations, and the work that they create is put into the public domain. And I think that the work that free software does is just as important and maybe even more important on a day-to-day basis. And I believe that free software should be funded uh, directly by governments in order to keep things running. It is in the collective best interest of everyone that we fund free software. And, and of course, it, this can get complicated about, well, then who's going to fund it? You know, will, should it be the United States? Should it be France? You know, should it be Chile? Um, that's a, a different problem. But let's at least start talking about this as a political issue, where if I go to a politician and I say, well, I want my tax money going to this because it's important uh, to the world. And, and in the same way that, that you know, I believe that I, I want to see more of my tax money going to research and I want to see more of my tax money going to science. I want to see more of my tax money going to free software. Right. And we should also say that historically, um, your tax dollars have funded a lot of proprietary software. Um, and you know, uh, why, if you're, if you're, if the, the public is paying for it, I feel like the public should benefit it for it. Like that is a straight up common scenario. Uh, and, and I, I think you'd probably agree. Uh, yeah, and as you say, the the government does buy, you know, does procurement of software, and there have been um, uh, programs that have preferred free software over time. Um, uh, in in Europe, in the United States, I don't know, um, I don't have specifics on that right now. Um, the big news is that the EU has put out a bug bounty for free software and bug bounty is basically that they're going to help. They're going to put money toward the uh, addressing of certain bugs that are in free software. And there's a whole bunch of them and they're different projects and, and that's great. And I'm really excited to see that. And I think that's, that's a great start, but I think we need to go further. I think instead of saying, okay, the government's going to fund specific bugs that the government should have um, an office that, and I say the government, I mean, I mean, all the governments uh, should have an office that um, that that is maintaining or that is funding the maintenance of software, whether that's through employing uh, people to write free software or whether that is, you know, doing through kind of contracting or through donations. I think those are open questions about what the, the fiscal structure looks like. But I think it's vitally important um, for society that we have these kind of structures. This is something that I've thought about a lot uh, over the over the last decade, and and has become increasingly important uh, as time has gone on. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we should we we can and should. I think you and I both know some people who are involved in the in you know government funded free software stuff, and we should get them on here. But we it's also worth saying that in 
actually, there were a couple of executive orders that Obama signed during his administration that directly encouraged the release of, you know, federally funded stuff as being free software and also, you know, open data, I'll say also around in quotes. Uh, And I don't know if those got overturned. I can't find the pages they used to be at anymore, like a lot of things that have happened since the recent administrative turnover. But uh, that was an initiative that was started a few years ago, and uh, I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that those those grand initiatives are great. Um, uh, I know that having you know been in this in these environments, um, these those decisions, although influenced by those kind of orders, are often um, done at a much more um, individual project, individual contract level. Um, yeah. That are of course influenced by policy, but but I think that rather than do these uh, gestures uh, of we would prefer if software were free um, that the government can just say, here's, here's a, a new initiative. And that initiative is that we are going to set aside money specifically for the, for, for this, for this purpose. Yeah, I agree. I, I, think, that, I think that's where we need I to I agree go. with that. So do we want to talk about academia or do we want to leave that for the next? Um, I mean, academia, do you think that that fits more in the charity or in more in the businessy side of things? I think it's. Just, I think. I think at this point, it's a. It's. It's. It sounds to me. It's a lot like um, free software in academia is a lot like the twenty percent rule in a in a company. That's a good call. So actually, why don't we decide to use wrap that up? as our wrap up and and also a teaser for the next episode. Ooh, teaser. Um, and uh, you and I can now sign off and uh, um, well, sign off officially and we might just immediately record the next episode, but you won't get to see it for another week. Uh, so, oh, that's well, or or you've binge listening and you can just oh, yeah, that's play right. The next episode, yeah, that's true. All <laughs> right, well, goodbye, everybody. Uh, hope you are having an excellent start of the new year. Happy 2019. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joth, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on OpenGameArt.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.